Welcome to A Second Chance, personal stories of near-death experiences, the journey and beyond. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio, stay tuned and get in tune with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to A Second Chance Podcast. I'm your host, Gina. I'd like to wish everybody a happy new year. This is the first show of 2015. I certainly hope that everybody enjoyed the holidays and got to spend some time with family. Today's show is very different from what we've had on this podcast before. We interview Stephen Garrett, who is Canada's first proclaimed death coach. Don't know anybody else that calls themselves a death coach yet, and you might wonder what that is, and we'll get to that in just one minute. Now, if you have ever lost a loved one, or if you've had a close call with death yourself, then you know all too well how hard that it can be to work through the grief, the changes, and that it changes you so much you never do get back to who you were before. Instead, you become a different person. And Stephen Garrett does a lot of coaching and helps a lot of people that have had these experiences in their life. And he has a way of looking at it that there's the life side to death. So I hope that you enjoy this interview. And I have all the links on the website at everydayisasecondchance.com. If you have any questions, please feel free to jump over there and ask. And I'm sure he will be happy to answer all of those for you. Also, just wanted to send you all an earbud warning. This is the first interview that we have done in a cafe. And there is quite a bit of background noise and the volume does go up and down. So if you have earbuds in, please be cautious. I don't want the sound to hurt your ears. All right, everybody, thank you so much, and we will see you next week. Welcome to a Second Chance podcast. This is our first interview, live from Bean Around Books in Meeple Ridge. I am here with Stephen Garrett, and he is the death coach. Welcome, Stephen. (laughs) Yes, I am the death coach. I'm glad to be here, Gina. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. I think a lot of people are going to ask right away, what is a death coach? <laughs> <laughs> I get asked that a lot. And uh, all a death coach is is somebody who helps people uh, get through that challenging aspect of life. Uh, whether it's the one dying or whether it's the ones who survive the death, uh, I work with both and help them transit the change in life called death in a more graceful, open, honest, loving way. So I've shared my story with our audience before, and they all know all too well about how much that you helped me. Oh, and Oh, thank you. When I was in the hospital, I hadn't told any of my family I was there, and you were the first person that I called. Yep. And I was just so amazed when you offered to come see me in the hospital, because before that, we didn't know each other so well. And I'm guessing that you do that for a lot of people and spend a lot of time in the hospital? I do. I, uh, I spend a fair bit of time in hospitals. I spend a fair bit of time in hospices. I spend a fair bit of time in homes, because death can happen anywhere, so... When I get the call, I'm likely going to respond with a yes, as I did with you. Mm. It's a time of life where most North Americans and most Canadians have aversion and resistance. When the word death is uttered, everybody runs for cover. I tend to run towards it. Not that I'm more anxious to have my life end unexpectedly or quickly, but it's just a service I can provide for others that can be very helpful, as you found out. Well, what excited me about talking to you so much after is that you weren't scared of all the experiences I had or what I was going through. And most everybody else in my life 
they wanted to get away from that conversation as fast as they could. Yep. And I know they loved me a lot. Yep. But it was different talking with them than you. Well, you see, what goes on for folks when death is near? We always talk about near-death experiences. But when death is near, our own mortality gets all crazy and kind of freaked out because right in front of me is me, actually. So if my loved one is close to dying, I'm actually looking at myself in a way because I'll be close to dying one day. So these near-death experiences, being in the proximity of death, usually result in what happened for you. Friends kind of heading for the pool hall or anywhere other than where you are because you're closer to death. You're nearer to death than they are. So what I do, and what I've discovered, is by being around near-death experiences or by being near to death, my life actually gets enhanced and fulfilled because death I've taken on as a teacher and I'm working on rebranding death from a grim reaper to an inspirational teacher. Oh, I love the way you look at that. And before we go any further talking about that, tell us about how you became a death coach, Stephen. <laughs> Man, well, <laughs> I used to be a stockbroker. And uh, I made a lot of money. I drove a BMW. I had wingtip shoes, horned rim glasses, the right suits, Hugo Boss, this, silk ties, all kinds of stuff. And uh, May the 5th, 1988, at 6.32 in the evening, I was in Toronto, and I had what I call a near-death experience. I got a phone call that my sister had just passed away, suddenly and unexpectedly. And it was shocking to my body, because she was a young woman. She was 36, and it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I'm the older brother. I should go first. My parents should go first. All that kind of stuff was going on. So it, it, it shook my foundation so much so that I had to make a change in my career. Um, my BMW wasn't going to bring my sister back. My RSPs weren't going to bring my sister back. My ping golf clubs weren't going to bring my sister back. All the assets I'd worked hard for weren't going to bring my sister back. I tried negotiating with God for months and months and months, and God would have nothing to do with it. So what I realized was that my near-death experience was teaching me that everything I was striving for wasn't really, um, in quotation marks, worth it. I needed to make a change in my life. So mm -hmm. I quit being a stockbroker one day. I gave up a six-figure salary and my BMW and all my trappings that I loved so much. I became a social worker. And that led me to working with families and couples, and it's brought me to death and dying. By the way, you won't find death coach on any of the uh, career descriptors anywhere in the, <laughs> in the books. It's a very new title. And, uh, that's what's got me here. And what I realized was as I helped people, the one thing that they didn't do really well was they didn't do change. Mm -hmm. And all change is, is something was and now it isn't. All death is is life was and now it isn't. Mm -hmm. So I just followed my nose. And here I am as Canada's first proclaimed death coach. Are you Canada's first? I'm the only guy who calls myself a death coach. Okay, that is amazing. Yeah. So if we go back a little bit to unplugging from your corporate job. Yes. And we talk a little bit about that decision. Do you think that watching somebody die has just as much an effect as my experience of being told that I'd had a heart attack and could die? Yep, yep. absolutely. It, uh, that phrase, near-death experience, we, we take it to mean it needs to be our own near-death experience. Sometimes that's the case. Other times it's a death near to us. My sister Jody, I loved her deeply. She was very dear and near to me. Mm -hmm. So when I witnessed her death, uh, it shook me up 
probably more profoundly than my own near-death experience might have. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that phrase near-death experience needs to be explored a bit further. But for me, a near-death is, if, for example, if you died, I would be affected by it. And I would be affected by it in many ways, some of them very positive, because death would remind me, oh, man, I should live fully today. Mm -hmm. So does that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. And when you made this decision to leave the corporate world, uh, a lot of our listeners today are veterans yeah. that have just come back from serving in Iraq, yep. um, moms that have become completely overloaded and ended up sick. Yep. So if you're at that point where you were making that decision, you yep. left your job, you were starting to be a social worker, was it like a clear-cut path you just knew exactly what to do, or did you have to do some work there? I knew what I didn't want to do. That was clear. I didn't want to be a stockbroker, money market guy anymore. That was clear. Mm -hmm. What I did want to do was not as clear. Um, I did want to help people. That was what was the kind of like my mission statement. I wanted to help people. Mm -hmm. How it would look, I had no idea. Uh, to give you an example, my first year as a social worker, I made $12,000. That used to be my monthly income Wow. when I left stockbroking. So it was jarring and shocking. And yeah, you know, I had lots of challenges. I had to put money in the bank. I had to pay bills. I had to get food for my family. I was building a house. I had to find my way to earn income. And I was, I was challenged all the time. I almost went back to stockbroking wow. because it was something I knew that I felt safe with. Mm -hmm. But there was a louder call from my heart that was opened up when my sister passed away that I spent more time listening to. So I just stayed with it. And some months I made no money, other months I made big money, and sometimes we were eating peanut butter sandwiches. Mm -hmm. But we just got through it somehow because I paid attention to my heart more than the yapping and the noise in my head. Do you have any advice for anybody that's just going through this right now? <laughs> How <laughs> yeah, to start? <laughs> yeah. Number one, don't do it alone. Mm -hmm. I did it alone, which means I just, I just handled all my internal upset, my worries, my concerns, my confusion. I handled it myself. I didn't have a support group. Uh, I didn't have a therapist or a counselor or a coach. I did it all by myself. That's the hard way to go. What I would do if I were going to do it again is I would have a coach and I would have some friends and I would have a support group who could help me negotiate my new path because I don't know the way. And I need the view and the hearing and the mind of others to help me see where the openings are. So don't do it alone would be my first piece of encouragement. Second piece of encouragement is start doing it. Mm -hmm. make the change get on with it um, I think what happens is most of us are frightened we're afraid to death to make a change we don't want to let go of what it is we know even if it's shitty we don't want to let go of that because we have at least some awareness that's certain for us but to make a wholesale change and to jump into a whole new lifestyle uh, is it's a sign of courage Mm -hmm. And the wisdom with the courage that you need is to have other people doing it with you. Mm -hmm. And likely people who have walked the path before. Because mm -hmm. they'll see all the pitfalls and they'll see all the sidetracks and they'll see all the distracting thoughts that want you to go back to what you once knew. Mm -hmm. So do it with others. Is this how you got into coaching? Is wanting to give back to help those people that are going through where you were? Yep, absolutely. When I, when I got help, when I got coaching, uh, when I found guides and mentors that supported me and I saw how um, supportive that was and how fantastic it was to have people I could talk to and share my worries and concerns with and they would help me find a way, 
Man, oh man, why wouldn't I want to give that back? Without them, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. Well, I'm thankful you are. Yeah. And I think I've seen something in you that I wanted when I first met you. And they always say that you're very successful if you love what you do, even if you never get paid for it. And I remember the first time that he found me, I was in tears, and we must have talked for two or three hours. And at that time, I couldn't understand why you take that time, because no one ever had. Like, why would you take that time to sit down with me? And you just, you look so passionate about what you do and talking to other people and helping them. Even though it's your job, you're still willing to do it just to help people. Totally. There's somebody who's sitting in front of me who needs some help. How could I not help out? It's like so silly that we don't do that. And you're right. I would, I would, even if I didn't get paid, I would do what I do. Now, my preference is to get paid because I've got a house to live in. I've got cats to feed. But that's the thing. I mean, people often talk about do what you love and the money will follow. When I started doing this death work, um, even bringing the word death coach up to people, they'd run the other way. I'd meet people and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm a death coach. And off they go to market. Death is a pretty tough go. But I stayed with it because I love it. And I love serving in this way. And uh, all of a sudden, which means over the course of three years, now I'm very busy. I've got clients all over North America. I've got teaching gigs all over the place. And things have started to um, show up for me in my life. But they showed up for me in my life because I was persistent. And I continued every day to do something towards my goal of being a death coach, which is the same for any of your listeners. All you've got to do is persist and be patient and practice and have a purpose, a calling, if you will. And, uh, if you practice those P's and you've got a calling, and you've got a good team around you, there's no reason you won't be successful. No, I think that's great advice. And yeah. I think our listeners would love to hear some of the stories that you have because I've had the pleasure of talking with you for hours off of the interview. And you have so many great stories that we couldn't even share them all in the time we have if we tried. Yeah. Well, which one would you like? Do you remember one that was helpful for you? Oh, a lot of your stories have been helpful. I remember when I told you I drove bus on Hastings Street. For anyone that's not from Canada, Hastings Street is one of the roughest streets that there are. Yeah. And that you'd shared with me that you worked as a social worker in the houses with a lot of the people. Yeah. I'm just curious if you have any stories you could share, maybe what that was like and being so close to death. Well, you know, it's, uh, downtown East End of Vancouver is a war zone. There's 260 nonprofits working there. There's 8,500 people who are homeless and drug addicted or alcohol addicted or sex addicted. It looks like a pretty nasty place to be. It looks like there's not much life going on there. But what I discovered by being with people is there's a lot of life going on. And there's a lot of community going on down there. And there's a lot of love going on down there. It just looks differently than we think it does. Most people in the downtown East End aren't there by choice. They just haven't got the coaching or the mentoring or the life skills or the training or the background or the supports to help them make different decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I realized uh, through that whole process was that um, the difference between me and them, and I don't like to have us and them, but the difference between me and somebody living in the downtown East End was only a thin little veil. I could have been down there at the drop of a hat. Any one of us could have been. Oh, absolutely. And... Um, that judgment that we carry that, oh, there's a them down there. Mm. Oh, they're welfare people, or they're on employment insurance, or they're bums, or they're addicts. That's all just a way of distancing ourselves from life that's going on. Mm. I could have been 
somebody who I was helping. I could have been a heroin addict. I could have been a sex trade worker. I could have been any of those things that those people were. I just had the good fortune not to be. Mm -hmm. Working with them, I discovered lots of things about myself. And I discovered that community looks way different in practice than it does look as a noun. So there's a lot of amazing things that happened down there for me, and I was faced with death every day. And learned to embrace it, because without death, I wouldn't be having the cup of tea I'm having with you. I wouldn't be eating an apple. I wouldn't be eating meat. I wouldn't be eating fish if there weren't death. Death is fundamentally important. So I know a lot about death by being in the downtown East End and seeing it happen regularly. Mm-hmm. Hearing the sirens, seeing the needles, man. It's quite an experience. I can see it just from my time driving bus, and I don't even know how I could ever put it into words to really share what it's like to be there. And yet, they're real people. Oh, yeah. And uh, all they need is real contact, and they need to be called by their name. Mm-hmm. Not a bum or a derelict or an addict. Those are all descriptors. They're all judgments. And what I did well in the downtown East End was I found out everybody's name. Mm-hmm. First thing I do is I'd stick my hand out and shake their hand and ask them for their name and give them mine. I made them human, mm-hmm. and being with them in a human way was what made the difference for me. I found what really brought out my passion was watching them grow. And yep. I get some of them; they'd start to wait for my bus, yep. and then they were excited to tell me that you know they got themselves into a shelter, and then they got themselves a volunteer job, and then they were helping at the soup kitchen, and yep. they were healing. And I think everybody has that ability. Totally. I haven't met one person that hasn't got the ability to heal. Mm-hmm. All they need is a little bit of help along the way, a lot of love, and some connection, like you and me. It's all that's required is just to have a connection, a contact, somebody that you feel has your best interest in mind, a fan, a cheerleader. That's I love all it. that's required. So what do you see that you do now on a daily basis? What is the core of your business? core of my business is death, which actually is life, because we put so much attention on death, we forget that the person is living still, they haven't died yet. And even if their loved one has passed away, the survivors are still living. So it's all about life, although I use the death coach name or title and use death as my doorway into life, um, it's all about life. It's all about living fully. My brother Peter is not well, he's struggling with cancer. It's his sixth year. And I'll be seeing him later today. And part of me is scared to see him physically because I think he's going to be way more weak than he was the last time I saw him. But he's still alive. So we're going to go and watch a hockey game. We're going to go and do some stuff together as brothers. And yeah, he's dying. He's in the active stages of dying. But he's still alive. So we're going to put our attention on the living piece and let the death that's looming inspire us. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. I think a lot of people have a hard time trying to know yeah. how to be with yeah. somebody that's dying. Yep. I know yep. I, I used to, and even just talking to you right now, I don't know if I should be saying, I'm really sorry, it must be hard for you, or just listening. Yeah, and that's our tendency, is we, we tend to want to uh, excuse the death or make apologies or make the person feel better. And that's part of our culture, is we want the person to feel better. Yeah, I'm sad about my brother. But I don't know whether he's going to die tomorrow, the next day, the next year, five years, or 20 years. From now. I don't know for sure. It looks like he hasn't got a lot of time left. But I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't apologize or try to make anybody feel better. I'd want to hear more about how they're really feeling mm-hmm. and, and be open to uh, the sadness or the sorrow or the grief and not make it go away. This is what happens around death. When somebody's died, everybody wants life to get back to normal. Well, number one, the person uh, who's survived the death 
their life will never get back to normal because their normals change. Number two, their grief process may take 20 years, may take two years. Everybody's got their own pace. And if we're able to be with them and hear the sadness and hear the saying, the anger, hear the frustration, hear the confusion, hear the wishing and regrets, that will help them heal more quickly as opposed to what we try and do, which is to hurry up the process so we don't have to feel our own mortality. Mm -hmm. That's what it's really about, is we want people to feel better so we don't have to face our own mortality. So what is that process like? Say a mother who's lost a child. Would two yeah. mothers have the same process, or would they be no. very different? No, they're very different processes. People often ask me, uh, what's the formula for healthy grief? What's the formula for the grief process? What's the formula for the cycle of grief? And I say there isn't a formula. Grief is, and helping people with grief is an art form. Everybody has a different way of grieving. You would have one, your mom would have one, your daughter will have one, your friends will have one. Even women would have a different process individually. Men and women have a very different process. You know, there's 7.2 billion people on the planet. There's 7.2 billion different ways to grieve. Now, signs of healthy grief are expression of it, acceptance of it, um, not trying to make it go away or force it down or stuff it down or smoke it down with pot or nicotine or drink it down with alcohol. Expression is a healthy sign of grief. Um, getting back to life, and I'm not going to say normal life because life never gets back to normal, but getting back to life, getting back in the swing of things, getting back to work, those are all healthy signs that the person is making progress. Mm -hmm. But expression would be one of the most important things I would look for. Is somebody expressing their grief or are they stuffing it and hiding because they don't want to make others feel awkward? True. And when you say getting back to work, do you think that in your experience with the people you work with, do they go back to work, or do you find a lot of people end up in your situation where they can't and life's changed? It depends a lot in, on their habits and the momentum of their life. Some people change jobs. They go back to work for a while and realize, wow, this isn't what I want to do, so they'll make a change. Others love what they're doing, so they go back to work happily. Mm. A lot of people go back to work as a distraction. So they don't want to sit with the grief and the sadness or the loneliness or the emptiness that they'd feel if they were back in their home where their husband or their wife or their child wasn't. So some people use work as a, an escape or an avoidance of grief. But if they're grieving in a healthy way and they go back to work, that's always a good sign. Because grief, by the way, isn't a solo journey. It's a community affair or a family affair. It should be done with others. People who grieve alone, it's not really grief. Grief needs to be expressed and received by somebody else. It takes at least two. So if we were to talk a bit about this, if mm -hmm. somebody was in grief right now and they didn't have the support they need, is there anything you can share with them of how they can ask for that? Yeah, phone me. <laughs> Get on the internet. Look for a death coach. Look for a, a, a grief and loss coach. Find a hospice. Mm -hmm. uh, go somewhere where there's some skill and ability in working with grief. Um, what I do know for sure is unexpressed grief is almost like a it's like a cancer or like an energy that it'll just eat you up over time if it doesn't get expressed out of the body and out of the mind and out of the heart so I would go straight to a hospice or a church or somewhere where they deal with death on a semi-regular basis and I would say you know what I'm having trouble with my grief expression I'd like to sit with somebody can you give me a hand I go get some help and are you able to sit down with people I know the answer to this but just for the audience are you able to sit down with them and their family and help their family to be able to give them what they need? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I've just finished a chat with a, a 60-year-old daughter and an 89-year-old mother, and mom's getting close to death, so there's pre-grief going on. So I just have them speak about it. And sometimes it takes an outside party to come into a family and be the ingredient that will help communication take place. And it's very easy to do if you've got the heart for it and the compassion for it. I've worked with many families that have been having difficulty facing death or expressing grief around death. They don't want to use the person's name and bring up all the feelings. The feelings are always in the body. So mm -hmm. it's just a matter of sitting down and, and uh, asking and being curious and being loving at the same time. So before we have to wrap up, a couple things I want to mention that I have all your contact information at the website everydayisasecondchance.com so they can find you there always. Awesome. I'll put all your links in the show notes. Awesome. But I would like for you just to share them as well. Uh, sure. Where can people find you and get a hold of you? <coughs> people can find me at www.embraceyourdeath.com. They can find me on my cell phone at 604-328-7054, or they can find me on Facebook. Excellent. So one more thing I really want to talk about before we have to say goodbye, and that is the Death Cafe. Okay, great. <laughs> the first one that I was at was here in this bookstore. Yep. And I was spinning with anxiety, and I didn't even know how to stay present in the room. Yep. And in just six months, I've gone from sitting here with you, having this conversation, being very comfortable with death. Yep. And I would love to see your death cafe one day go online so that people that are in the States or in Australia can be a part of it. Oh, but that's a darn good idea. A virtual death cafe. Oh, I think it's so helpful. It is just so helpful. But tell our listeners a little bit about what is the death cafe. Well, it's a gathering of people who um, want to explore what death means to them in their human life. It's not a grief and support and loss group. It's nothing like that. It's just a collection of people who are curious about the uh, fundamental importance of death. Here at Being Around Books, we've had groups of 24 that large, uh, age range from 16 to 86. Wow. So young kids come, older folks come, and everybody in between comes. And we simply sit around and we talk about death and what it means to each one of us. And there's great listening that goes on. There's great wisdom that comes out from the young kids and from the elders. So it's just a way of getting together as a community, talking about one of the most fundamentally important topics we can talk about, which is death. What I found out, Gina, is the more we're able to embrace our death, the more rich our life comes. Mm, very well said. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with everybody before we say goodbye? Start talking about death and dying. Mm -hmm. It's the most enlivening thing you can do. And if you're a parent and you've got um, family members and you've got some assets, Get your end-of-life planning done. It's most important to do that. How often do you get phone calls from people like me saying, I'm in the hospital, I didn't do my planning, help me now. <laughs> uh, two or three times a month currently, which is, which is great and likely more over time. There's not much you can do at that point really to help, is there? No, at the, at the end of life it's difficult to do. It should be done way ahead of time. You got lucky, Gina. You had a scare. Yes. So you can use that scare as motivation for your life. You can get your death planning done. Who's going to talk for you if you can't? What do you want from the system and what don't you want from the system? And have you got your will done because you've got kids? So all that stuff is important to get in place. Very important. Yeah. Well, thank you, Stephen, so much for your time and for being here. And we'll definitely have all that contact information for everybody if they need to get in touch with you. Awesome. Thank you, Gina. Nice being with you. And thanks to Dan. Big thanks to Dan. Being Around Books has some services online. Yes, I do. You can buy tea online. You can buy tea online. Okay, so if you're in North America, you can buy some fine 
loose leaf tea from down here at Bean Around Books. Beanaroundbooks.com. Beanaroundbooks.com. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Radio. Personal stories of near-death experiences, the journey, and beyond. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio. So tune in again with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio.